Good evening. Uh, welcome to CSIS. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Andrew Schwartz. I am uh, the Chief Communications Officer here at CSIS and tonight I am absolutely thrilled to have with us a extraordinarily very special guest, Ambassador Zalman Choval, who will discuss with us his memoir, Jerusalem and Washington, A Life in Politics and Diplomacy. This right here, it's on sale out here and uh, Hanukkah's not too early, so go buy three or four, okay? Um, John Alterman, uh, my distinguished colleague of over a decade um, and a dear friend is here tonight to um, talk with Ambassador Choval. John is, uh, of course, known to all of you as one of the leading Middle East experts in the world. Um, he's known to me as not only a friend and great colleague, but he's known to me as our Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair here at CSIS, our Senior Vice President and our Director of our Middle East Program. Um, I want to just start by saying two years ago, I was sitting, uh, two years ago this summer, I was sitting in my family's apartment in Tel Aviv, North Tel Aviv, in Ramad Aviv to be precise. And I, I was looking at my email and I got an email from Ambassador Choval and he said, um, Andrew, I, I was talking to Dr. Hamry and he, we, we discussed uh, getting my book translated into English. Uh, would you, you know, he, he said you might be able to help me with that and I said, Ambassador, where are you? I'm, I'm actually in Israel. Are you in Israel right now? And he said, yes. As a matter of fact, I am. I'm in Tel Aviv. And I said, well, I'm actually in Ramad Aviv. Are you close by? And he says, yeah, where are you in Ramad Aviv? And I said, I'm on Ravashi Street. And he said, well, I'm a couple blocks away from you right now. <laughs> so it was a thrilling experience to receive an email like that um, from one of my uh, heroes and I was thrilled to work with him uh, to help bring this in a very small, small way on my part to fruition. This book is fantastic and I've been uh, getting little snippets of it as it's been going on uh, at, throughout the publication process. So I hope you all will enjoy it as much as I have uh, in the sneak previews that I've had. Um, the memoir, of course, takes readers behind closed doors and into rooms where world leaders made history um, altering decisions about the first Gulf War, the fate of Jonathan Pollard, the role of the PLO, and Israel's responses to international criticism and hostilities. Um, Ambassador Chauval has had a long and distinguished career, um, and his, his career has mirrored the birth of the Jewish state. He was first elected to the Knesset, um, and he inherited David Ben-Gurion's seat um, Ambassador Chauvel served for many, many years uh, as a member of the Knesset starting in 1970. Uh, in fact, he served with many of the state's uh, founding fathers. As one of the uh, founders of Israel's Likud party, uh, Ambassador Chauvel was an early ally of uh, a guy who's pretty well known now, his name's uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, ambassador Chauvel was twice ambassador to the United States, uh, most recently from 1998 to 2000 and pri prior to that from 1990 to 1993. He played an important role at the Madrid Peace Conference as a member of, uh, as a member of the Israeli negotiating team. Currently he serves as a director at the Bank of Jerusalem 
chairman, uh, as chairman of the board of directors of the, for the Export Investment Corporation, as well as many other senior board positions. Ambassador Cheval was elected president of the Israel-American Chamber of Commerce in 2003 and serves on the International Advisory Board of the Council on Foreign Relations. Please join me uh, with your applause with a warm welcome for Ambassador Zaman Cheval. My You're turn. Up. Okay. I was given the privilege of uh, speaking, sitting down. Andrew, where is he? Thank you very, very much for the warm words over there. And without his help, I don't know if this book would have come into existence. He put me in touch with the right people, with the right publisher and everything. So really, thanks a lot. So, uh, you know, there's a saying that uh, the criminal always returns to the place of his crime. I'm back in Washington. <laughs> uh, but first, I think I'll turn it around. I want to thank uh, CSS for hosting this event. Uh, of course, especially John Altman, who's sitting beside me, director of the Middle East program in charge of this occasion. And uh, although he's not here, also to Dennis Ross for writing, for writing a much too generous forward to the book. You know, whenever there's a new biography out, most people, including myself, look at the index in order to see if they're in it. <laughs> uh, so uh, some time ago, I received a package. Looks like a book. I opened it eagerly, only to discover that it was a sales catalog of Victoria's Secret. No index. I wasn't in there. <laughs> so seriously, why write an autobiography? Is it vanity? Is it egotism? I guess it's also that. It's also, you know, psychologically reliving one's own life, one's own experiences. Uh, but I think for me, there were other reasons too. Having grown up at a time of uh, the most tragic, but also the most uplifting optimistic part of Jewish history with the Holocaust on the one hand and uh, the rebirth of Jewish sovereignty in its own land on the other hand. So by design or by luck, having worked with many of the leaders of Israel's rebirth and growth, actually all the prime ministers, when I say having worked, this doesn't mean that I always was in the most important positions, but I had some sort of sometimes more, sometimes less working relationship. All prime ministers from Ben-Gurion to Netanyahu, as Andrew said, and uh, also with people who during my time did not become prime minister like Ariel Sharon and of course Moshe Dayan who did never become prime minister. So, uh, you know, I thought that, right, as a private person now, I should tell 
my story, which is not my story, it's the story of Israel. And with, I hope, some degree of, of authenticity. Uh, being an ambassador, especially an Israeli ambassador in Washington, is not like any other diplomatic position in the world. And it helps, I would say, uh, having a political background, as I had, member of Knesset, because Washington is, of course, the, the most political town uh, on the earth. If, if you have what it takes, you almost become part of the Washington series, uh, scenery yourself. An Israeli ambassador is actually four ambassadors at the same time. To the administration, naturally. To Congress. I was at least twice a week on the Hill, if not more. To the media. And it's only uh, the ambassador himself that the media wants. Even if I have 30 people on my staff, no, they want to talk, they want to interview the ambassador, and then the next ambassadorship, and which I consider maybe the most important, but certainly not less important, it's being an ambassador to the Jewish community in America. And if you have all these things, you can be a successful ambassador. By the way, I had decided on my own initiative, which isn't so usual either, on presenting my credentials to the president to give him a private gift on my own, on my own behalf. So for uh, President Bush, this was my first ambassadorship. I brought from Israel a mezuzah. Everybody knows what the mezuzah is, hopefully made completely of cast iron or something like that. Okay, so I go into the, the olive room and uh, we talk and we talk and we talk and I'm waiting for the mezuzah to come in because the security guys took it at the door. Finally, it comes in completely broken up into little pieces. They were afraid that there was an explosive device inside it. But the second time, it was worse. When I presented my credentials to President Clinton, the gift I brought with him was a very beautiful book uh, of the Book of Psalms, made hundreds of years ago, printed in Spain, very beautifully illustrated. So I go up to President Clinton, shake a cent. He knew it, he knew me already from before, and I said, Mr. President. This little book of, psalm, of Psalms is going to take care of all the problems you may have. Now, what I didn't know was that on, very, that on that very day, Judge Starr presented him with all those documents and all these terrible things about Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> and I said to myself, President Clinton probably says not alone, not enough that I have problems with this Jewish girl. Now the Jewish ambassador makes fun of me. <laughs> but, 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 it, it uh, actually passed very well and we, we became and remained friends, I would say. Uh, if you read my book, 
you will see that, as Andrew said, I was twice the ambassador, which is quite unusual, I think. Uh, my first term, I consider the more important one, the more significant one, because of the events. It was the Gulf War. It was the immigration of Russian Jews from the former Soviet Union, a million people in one year, and, and what we had to do about it in order to integrate them, to absorb them economically. And that created a certain link, uh, not just to America, obviously, but also to the Gulf War. And I'll explain that perhaps a little bit later. And so that, and in addition to that, the Madrid conference, all this was in my first term, which was, uh, I would say, the start of bilateral negotiations uh, between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Of course, these negotiations only led to one result, and that was with Jordan, because Jordan wanted to achieve a peace treaty with Israel, whereas the Syrians and the Lebanese and the Palestinians were only there because America had asked them to be there. They had absolutely no intention to uh, achieve anything else or except being there. Uh, in my book, I jump to different things. As the title says, political, not just diplomatic. And there's a lot of politics in that book. Uh, with me being involved, sometimes in the center, in the pivot, sometimes or very often also on the sidelines, but at very exceptional times and very interesting times. I mean, times in political times in Israel are always interesting, but if you look at the, those years with a new country, a new state, politics changing, party politics changing, because most Israeli political parties at the beginning of the state were really parties which were uh, created in the diaspora during the Zionist Congress, Zionist organization. They were not created in Palestine itself. But during my activity in, in Israeli politics, there was the beginning of a change. There were parties which were born and created on the ground of the Israeli re uh, reality with different issues sometimes than the ones of the parties which had been created in the past. So I think that was an especially interesting time, which at least partially is, is reflected uh, in, in this book of mine. Because I go back all the way from my birth, more or less, till now. Not exactly till now, but very shortly, I would say, before till now. A, way to, a word of explanation. I, I come here very often, every year, thanks to John Altman, uh, who arranges a sort of panel or seminar on Middle East affairs, in which uh, I, I figure, more or less. And so we decided we'll make this event sort of combination seminar and book signing, so you get two events for one price. And uh, I'll jump sometimes back and forth. It's like those movies which are fashionable now. You never know, is it the present or the future or the past which they show? 
So I, I'm going to refer to several things which uh, do reflect my book and sometimes don't reflect the book. Now, things are happening, of course. Things are happening that's something that somebody else also said. Wasn't President Trump things are happening? I don't know. <laughs> things are happening. Uh, and I'm, I'm not just saying this, you know, as a, as a figure of speech. Because if you look at this whole history, not of mine, not my history only, but the history of events in the world, in the Middle East, last few decades, you could say, well, some things are very static, haven't changed, Middle East, Israel-Palestinian uh, uh, problem, Israel-Palestinian crisis. That's true to a certain degree. But on the other hand, there are immense events happening all the time. So I, I would say that both these uh, definitions, static and changing, are true to the same extent. Just to give one example, for instance, the, the new Russian presence in the Middle East. I mean, you know, this is something in the old days of the Cold War, we knew the Russians were there because it was part of the Cold War. America backing Israel and uh, Russia backing Egypt, Syria, and some of the other Arab countries. It was part of, of a global confrontation. Not necessarily specifically directed at, at, the, at Israel or the Palestinians or whatever. Today, you have a real Russian presence, something which the Tsars were dreaming about but never succeeded to, to achieve. Russia is there to stay with a, per, a permanent port in northern Syria, all sorts, sorts of other activities, something which Israel certainly has to reckon with. So you have this reality, and on the other hand, you have, of course, the very close relationship between Israel and the United States. And uh, it is really, I would say, a very difficult but successful act of statesmanship on behalf of our government in Israel, of our prime minister, at the same time to find, to strike the right balance between our vitally important alliance with this country for all the obvious reasons, but also to maintain a pragmatic working relationship with Putin's Russia. And if you look at the news from time to time of Israel acting militarily against Iranian uh, units or Hezbollah, Iranian proxies in Syria, and you don't hear a word from Moscow. This is something you must ask yourself, how did this come about and what is really the lesson to be learned uh, from the point of view of, of view of diplomacy and leadership. Now, another big change, a very significant change, is the all of a sudden uh, affinity or budding relation, a relationship, and it's more than budding, between Israel and the Sunni Arab countries a big part of the Arab world, perhaps the most important part of the Arab world, different, from different points of view. 
Now, there was a reason for that, obviously. The reason is Iran. Both those Arab countries and Israel feel threatened by a common threat. Iran, Iran's nuclear ambitions, uh, Iran's hegemonic uh, uh, ambitions in the Middle East. And if you can add to that another element, the feeling among those Arab countries and Israel that the Middle East policy, especially with regards to Iran, of the previous American administration was dangerous, was creating a threat to us, to the countries in our neighborhood, both by opening the gates of the Middle East to the Russians and the Iranians. The Iranians, of course, is more worrisome to us uh, than the Russians and from that point of view. So you had a common interest between the Arabs and when there's a common interest, it certainly creates also a certain policy and strategic uh, 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 reality. And I want to make it very clear because this is something which comes up from time to time and when, when the American media has time to discuss foreign affairs and not just what's happening here <laughs> politically, Iran is the biggest threat as far as Israel is concerned. There should be no illusions. This is a regime which, which wants to destroy the state of Israel. And if they were to have the means, and they, were, they are working at that, and the nuclear agreement didn't solve the problem at all because it just postponed the issue. Okay, so 10 years later, uh, till now, for the first 10 years, everything's going to be fine. Then, after 10 years, you'll have the bomb and do whatever you want to do. And uh, this is a real threat. It's an existential threat, and we should not in any way think that it's just talk. People of that sort, ideologically, dogmatically, they mean what they say. By the way, it's interesting that in my second ambassadorship, when people didn't speak so much about the nuclear threat from Iran, we already started to have to deal with it on a more low-level uh, basis, but we already had talks with the CIA, who supported our view, by the way, and we could already see that there was something which um, is not good for us and is potentially dangerous. I would say, and I say this as uh, diplomatically as possible, the present American uh, policy towards Iran uh, with regards, I'm not talking about things which were in the papers in the last few days, which, you know, things which blow up and don't blow up and then they, de they decline again, but The policy which is forcing the Iranian regime to reduce its support for the terrorist organizations, for Hezbollah, for the different Shiite military organs all over the Middle East is working. And it's very well working. And the more there will be in that, in that direction, I would say, the better it is. 
So from that point of view, we are certainly uh, favorably uh, impressed by the present American policy, although we also have some criticism. For instance, we were not happy about President Trump removing American troops from Syria and then going back a little bit, not because those troops are really uh, uh, sufficiently strong fighting force if there would be a real uh, explosion or whatever, because, but because it has a very important symbolic effect. Are the Americans there or are they not? And uh, we are not happy with uh, the f decision by the Trump administration, as I said, to reduce its military presence in the Middle East. Uh, I, I know I'm expected to say something at least about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and that's natural because, first of all, that's what's been over the last 50, 60, 70, 100 years in the press, but also because a, a big part, a large part of my book, especially that part dealing with Washington and others, deals with it. Uh, deals with the Palestinian conflict, with the Arab conflict, and so on and so forth. And uh, I don't want to go too deep into all these things because that can be a seminar of its own, but I will say that some of the basic facts have not changed. People have changed, governments have changed, uh, attitudes have changed, but the basic facts have now changed, not since yesterday or since my first ambassadorship, whatever. Since the beginning, if you look back in history, all the way, let's say, to the Balfour Declaration, after which there were some people who believed, the British believed, the Zionist movement believed, well, that's a good basis for cooperation between Jews and Arabs in the Middle East. And there were some Arabs who shared that view. Uh, King Faisal at the time, Prince Faisal, later on King Faisal, met with Chaim Weizmann and they were discussing it. But that blew over almost immediately. And ever since, every attempt which was made, whether by Great Britain or America or the UN, or Sweden and different and Zionist organizations of reaching an agreement, whether it was 1937, the St. James Conference in London, 47, the UN, later on the Oslo Agreement, which I didn't support, but it was an important agreement, the Madrid Conference, if you want, whatever, the Palestinian answer was always we are not willing to negotiate unless you agree a priori to our conditions, creation of Palestinian state, Jerusalem, and really more because the basic ideology in the Palestinian national movement as it developed over the years, it's not a very ancient national movement, but it developed, I would say, from the beginning of the 20th century is we are not going to acknowledge the right of the Jewish people to a state of their own, period. And therefore, when the United Nations and first an American, British, 
a com commission of inquiry after the Second World War was sent to, to Palestine, the Mufti of Jerusalem forbade the people, Palestinians in the field, the business people, whatever, don't meet them. We don't even want to talk about it because talking about it would be admitting already the right of the Jews to, the to a state of their own. And that has not changed. That's still the same position. Therefore, without wanting to, sign, to, to sound uh, uh, pessimistic, because I'm by nature an optimist, Jewish people have to be optimistic, uh, I'm not too uh, optimistic about those new peace plan we are all hearing about. We'll soon hear it or see it perhaps in the, the month of June. There may be the best of intentions, there may be the best of ideas, some would be good, some would be worse, but it may be, it, it may be an attempt to create a new baseline. But the response on the Palestinian side is going to be the same. And actually you can see already some signs of it in today's press. We don't want to talk about it before we have an agreement. Whereas the more logical way would have been Let's create facts on the ground, facts for the Palestinians, not just economic facts, facts of self-governance, uh, facts of uh, cooperation with Israel. We'll come to the political settlement, but why deny anything else in the meantime which would improve the situation of Palestinian society, of uh, Palestinian economy? But no, we don't want to talk about it. We don't even want to hear about it. So, even though I want to hope for a better development, I don't think there's too great a chance. I don't want to discourage the people acting in these things with the best of intentions, but I'm not terribly hopeful. Do you know more on the, uh, uh, how should I call it, the uh, gossipy side? I'm all very often being asked how was it to work with different, four different prime ministers, two of them Labour, two of them Likud, and I'm Likud. But the Labour prime ministers, Rabin and uh, Barak, uh, kept me on for a certain time. Either they didn't have a better alternative or they thought I wasn't too bad doing a job, who knows. And it was interesting. I mean, people from different political uh, backgrounds. But basically, from the purely political point of view, it was not as different as you may think because the basic issues uh, relating to Israel and Israel's uh, you know, demands, problems, and so on, they were not so different whether you're a member of the Labour Party or you were a member of the Likud. It was the basic issue of not receiving recognition from the Palestinians, the basic desire of our enemies to destroy the State of Israel, the basic issue of security. Uh, so it wasn't a matter that you could say, I mean, all the world has changed all of a sudden. No, it wasn't really. Some of the uh, uh, the, the language was different, but many of the things were not really so different. 
I had a fairly good working relationship, I, I would even say a very good working relationship with all those prime ministers in some measure because they were all former colleagues of mine, either in the Knesset or um, in politics in general. And although officially, of course, they were my superiors, but I didn't feel like that. <laughs> I felt uh, that we were equals. Talking about the individual persons, the most pleasant or the easiest for me to work with was my first Prime Minister, Yitzhak Shamir. Uh, contrary, perhaps, to, his, to the image, he was a very tough guy, a very tough guy. But he was, I would say, purely concentrated on the job. He didn't care, he didn't give a damn about public relations or, or how people would write about him or talk about him. He was only referring to the job he was doing. He was very loyal to people working for him, which is a good position for someone working in government because usually people in government are bl being blamed for what their superiors do. But no, he was very, very loyal to his ambassador, and not just to me, his different ambassadors. Uh, also, because he didn't have a very good relationship with his foreign minister, who wanted his job, really. <laughs> so he, all American, uh, uh, all American affairs, from Israel's point of view, were really conducted through me, which gave me more authority in, in this country, in my position, and he usually, not always, but usually accepted my advice. For instance, I, uh, in the Gulf War, I counseled him for Israel not to interfere, and there were many people who had different opinions, including my good friend, the late Minister of Defense, Mr. Ahrens, also former ambassador here. But it was my view, which I uh, shared with uh, Shamir, and, and he accepted my advice in that respect, and in other issues as well. So that was a very good relationship. Then I had Rabin, who followed him, uh, who was very, very popular in America, especially in DC, which also made my job, I would say, easier. The next was Bibi Netanyahu, who, uh, never having served in an elected position before, was still finding his bearings uh, as prime minister. He knew the US well, for some people in the Bush and Clinton administration, perhaps too well. But this sometimes has advantages, sometimes not. Uh, I had a very good relationship with him. Uh, because, first of all, he was probably the most intelligent of the lot, also the most intellectual of the lot. And if I were asked today, I would probably say also the most statesmanlike of the lot, but that wasn't evident yet at that period, of course. And the last one was Ehud Barak, very confident, actually overconfident of his own ability to get everything including the Clinton administration or his own cabinet to bend to his wishes, which ultimately brought him down because he did not really recognize sufficiently the limits of limitations of, of Israel or any prime minister, even in his own country, even in, in his own 
uh, in his own environment. I will just make one final statement, oh, because time is running short. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but please do. Okay. <laughs> Whenever you say I shouldn't say that, that's the one exactly. thing to say. <laughs> uh, when I first came to America as a student, Harry Truman was in the White House. So you know how ancient I am. When I left my second post posting as ambassador, George W. Bush was on the way to the White House. But directly, I had worked, of course, as ambassador with Bush, the father, with Clinton, Clinton twice, almost, as I said, making it all the way to George W. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because I don't feel myself as a complete outsider. I feel myself as a sort of insider-outsider. And I'm very concerned about the schisms in today's politics, American politics and society. You can say like Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local, but American local politics is global. Whatever happens here has a direct impact on the rest of the world. And I'm especially worried and concerned as, as a Jew and an Israeli. And I always put this first a Jew and an Israeli, by growing anti-Semitism. We've seen the figures, we've seen the statistics. In Europe, we have seen that growing to great degree, also without any doubt influenced by Islamic trends, especially in France and in, in Germany. In America, you have the traditional extreme right-wing anti-Semitism, whether it's neo-Nazism <laughs> or Ku Klux Klan or whatever. <coughs> the ones we have seen in San Diego, we have seen in Pittsburgh, we have seen even in Charlottesville and other places. It's been there for a long time, but it has ups and downs. Right now it has an up. And it should be fought with uh, clenched hands, I mean with clenched, uh, with every way, fire with fire. But there is today in America a left-wing anti-Semitism, which is no less dangerous, maybe in the long run even more dangerous. It's better organized. It has an agenda. It has a presence on American campuses. It has a voice in Congress. Its leader is the BDS movement, there are others, and make no mistake about that. BDS is not about settlements. It's not about the Palestinians in that degree, Palestinian rights or anything like that. It's about the aim to destroy the state of Israel physically. The leader, the founder of BDS, Barghouti, has written we want to euthanize Israel. You know what that means. Therefore, BDS is a growing danger. And unfortunately, there's too much tolerance of that, very often from the best of intentions. 
why not be opposed to settlements? Perfectly legitimate. You can oppose settlements. Why not? It's in, you have plenty of Israelis to oppose settlements. But this is not it. This is just a red herring. The real purpose is to destroy the Jewish state and the Jewish people living there. And uh, I see this as a very dangerous development because it's not sufficiently, I would say, well recognized by everybody who should recognize it. Having sounded perhaps a bit overly worried, I want to con conclude, but before that, I want to mention, which as you probably saw that, the German Bundestag passed a resolution last Friday declaring the BDS moving being anti-Semitic and Nazi-like. If Germany could do it, I think other democratic countries, other liberal countries should do it too and should follow the same, the same, uh, uh, the same direction. Uh, I've lately reread all five, I think, or six volumes of uh, Winston Churchill's war memoirs. It, it's, it's well worth rereading if you have the time and have the strength to read to, to, to... Yours to is only one volume and it's fascinating and highly readable. <laughs> yeah. So I found a, st a sentence there, and you know Churchill was a lifelong Zionist, which was not easy because the British establishment was very anti-Zionist. But there, in the middle of the war, he writes, he puts this, the following sentence, I quote, this famous ancient race, at that time they said race, but what he meant was people, whose stormy and endless struggle for life stretches back to the fountain springs of human thought, have survived in spite of all that the world could do against them. And I think that sums up with regard to the Jewish people as a whole, and Israel in particular. I'm happy that I have had the chance to make some sort of contribution, limited as it was, to this quest of the Jewish people and the State of Israel for survival and growth. And I thank you for listening to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now you know why you should buy the book. We'll have copies for sale outside right after. Before we let them go, I want to ask you sort of a, a general question and then a specific question. And I think you are, as you've expressed, uniquely qualified to answer both. The general question is, how has diplomacy changed? How have the roles of foreign ministries changed? And diplomacy in Israel and the Israeli foreign ministry in particular, since you got into this racket, we've, had, we've had the explosion of, of news, satellite television, Twitter, all those things. You had two periods in Washington separated by time. How has the job of a diplomat changed now? I'm glad you asked your question. I didn't tell him to ask it, but I'm, I'm glad you did. 
And perhaps I will um, insert in that question something which you didn't ask, but which pertains to the same issue. In my book, actually, I, I quote Henry Kissinger, whom I saw last week in, in, uh, in New York, but I, didn't, I quoted something from his book on diplomacy, and he makes a very correct statement. Foreign policy is not something with a beginning and an end. You know, there are some ambassadors or some politicians, ministers think, I have now signed an agreement, that's it. El Barak once called me and said, uh, in November, we are going to be at the end of conflict with the Arab world and the Palestinians. <laughs> How can you say such a thing? It doesn't happen like that. Everything, everything in the world goes on and on. It changes shape from time to time. But look, even the problem <laughs> which we have with Iran, go and think back historically and biblically. There was Persia, there was Egypt, the Jewish state was sitting right in the middle, there were strategic... Foreign policy is an ongoing thing. And a good diplomat should understand that. He's not going to solve all the problems, and he's not going to create new problems by himself. These things go on and on. Now, obviously, everybody has already said that 10 years ago, not only now, that modern diplomacy is different because uh, communications are different, and they are. Um, you don't have to do everything through your uh, ambassador or through your consul or through your minister. You can speak prime minister to prime minister, prime minister to president, and back and forth. And, and they do, as we know. Still, it does not make uh, regular diplomacy, historical diplomacy, less important. Let's say President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu have a telephone organization, or they send a mail, or maybe it's a WhatsApp, I don't know, it costs less, it's I think. Jared WhatsApp, Kushner yeah. WhatsApp and And yeah, they brought a certain thing. You can't leave it like that, just leave it lay like that. There must be one person on the spot who has the confidence of his boss, prime minister or president, who follows up, who develops it. This cannot be done by Facebook or by Twitter or whatever. So it has changed, but still it's the same, provided conditional that the person in question, the ambassador, is sufficiently close to his boss, which I think the present Israeli ambassador is. So and vice versa. People, hmm? And vice versa. And vice versa. That people will know that he's not just saying things off the cuff. He really reflects what his boss wants. So I think that is certainly uh, an important aspect of the job. The last thing, which is not necessarily uh, connected only with diplomacy, but with politics in general, is social media. 
I mean, we are just at the beginning of seeing what this can what this can happen. In the last Israeli elections, I'm not talking about American elections. All the major parties had to take undertake all sorts of measures in order not to be um, how do you call it? Um, you know, to, to be broken into by uh, hacked and spoofed, so and on and so forth. Everybody was uh, concerned that maybe there would be this or that. There wasn't at the end of the day, but this very idea that something like that could happen, plus the fake news, which has become a major element in politics all over the world, is something which has changed. You will, will democracy be able to defend itself against that? I hope so, but I'm not sure. It is a sign of our You know, mind. in the old no. days, the fake news was made by the responsible people, not responsible, by the leaders themselves. I mean, what was Goebbels all about in Germany? It was all fake news from the top. But now it's much more wide, widely spread, or spreadly widely. It is a sign of our mind meld that, that you have beautifully moved over to the second question, which you didn't realize I was going to ask. And that's a political question about the movement of Israeli politics. As you rightly say, Israeli politics have been dynamic since the founding of the state. I am still struck at the image of a poll that the Israel Democracy Institute did at the beginning of April, which showed remarkably strong support for Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister among 17 to 24-year-olds, about 64% versus 17% support for blue-white. And support for Netanyahu coalition kept going down, crossed at the, I think, sort of 50-year-old bracket. And then all the people over 55, a group which I am enthusiastically joining, not only supported- How, how was it to be at that age? To, right, uh, okay. the youngsters. When my great-grandmother was, was in a okay. retirement home, she used to complain about the girls who were 75 downstairs. Anyway, um, but then among uh, people over 55, the support for blue-white continued to grow as people got older. What, how should we think holistically about Israeli politics where younger Israelis are overwhelmingly supporting the, the Likud coalition, which is uh, skeptical of uh, peace agreement with the Palestinians, uh, skeptical of, of courting uh, Israel's traditional ties with Europe, and an older generation seems to be dying out, which represents the view of Israel that many in Western Europe and the United States believe they grew up with. How, how, do, we, how, how do people need to think about Israel with those kinds of poll results? Okay. There was one comment in my, in my extended speech, which I didn't make because we don't have hours and hours. And I have noticed that uh, foreign uh, correspondents in Israel, but perhaps in other countries as well, very often reach the wrong conclusions about what's happening in the country in which they serve. If you looked at, I won't mention the name of the newspaper or whatever, 
If you looked at some of those reports in the weeks before the Israeli election, you would have seen statements like Netanyahu is fighting for his life, this may be the end of the Netanyahu era, there's a new general coming up and this. And for me, this was complete nonsense because I saw it as a foregone conclusion, mathematically and politically, that Netanyahu couldn't lose. He could have lost only if the Likud would have lost by its own or on its own eight, nine, or ten seats. But because of Likud itself and other parties, which declared a priori from the beginning that they will only support the prime ministership of Netanyahu, there wasn't even a theoretical chance that blue and white would form the next government. And at the end of the day, of course, Likud got more votes than blue and white, not many more votes, but more votes. And um, this coalition, which has not yet been formalized, it probably will in the next few days, had uh, something like, I think, 67 or something seats out of 120. And the other, the blue and white, without the Arab parties, had only 47. And with the Arab parties, they had only 53. So it was a foregone conclusion. And looking at the elections which took place now in Australia, where all the experts said Labour is going to win, similar experience. Those so-called experts talk with other experts who don't have really the touch of what's happening in the population. Coming back to your specific question. I don't think it is so, uh, what's the term, Mekinean or whatever? Manichaean. Manichaean. There no longer are these divisions which used to be in the past that the immigrants or the children from the Arab countries vote one way or the children of the Ashkenazi communities <coughs> vote another way. First of all, that's nonsense. In most Israeli families, you don't know. Are they from Syrian origin, to Egyptian origin, or Polish origin? They're all intermixed. This doesn't exist anymore. And you see that in the, I would say, in the political consensus, there are certain issues which play a more important role than others. All those <laughs> experts said, look, the social problems, it's difficult uh, to get an apartment, and things are very expensive, and people will turn against the government in power. They didn't, because what Israelis understood in their belly was that the real problem Israel faces is security, security, security. And that is also in the blue-white movement. When they started in their uh, campaign, um, General Gantz was a friend of mine, nice man. He began his campaign by saying how many Arabs he had killed in Gaza. I mean, this is not the sort of liberal statement you would expect. So this party really formed itself only on one agenda, one platform, not Bibi. And, what, and not Bibi turned out to be only Bibi. 
because they didn't have any other program. They had no suggestions on peace. They had no suggestions on, on to improve the economy, which is doing very, very well in Israel. So they only wanted to say, not, not Bibi. There are many people who don't like Bibi, but they wouldn't, didn't want to accept this as an argument to vote for people whom they don't know, who have no program. And um, I think that, at least for the time being, this is a central, uh, central concern, a central point, because when you say that supporters of Likud don't believe that there's a chance of peace, that applies to the people on the other side of, this, of the spectrum just as well. They only blame, let's say, Israeli right-wing governments for not having done the same thing, but most people in Israel have come to the conclusion, which I mentioned before, that we don't really have a partner on the other side. So why break our heads on something? Which is unfortunate, because we must, at the end of the day, come to some sort of arrangement of this issue. But right now, it's not going to happen. What struck me most was the, 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 the difference in the level of enthusiasm for Netanyahu versus the Gantz coalition. Four times as many young people supported the status quo, which I think is strange in most societies. And then it was a, it was a steady slope upward and a steady slope, slope downward with age. I think there's, there's something unique about Israel. Um, as, as we discussed, I'm going there tomorrow. I have to figure it all out. And I look forward to your helping me He's understand He's going it. on the, how do you call it? The, the inaugural United inaugural Direct flight. flight of United Airlines tomorrow to Tel Aviv. So um, please join me in thanking Ambassador Cheval. Please buy a copy of the book outside. Thank you very much. And Thank he you. will sign it for you. Thank you. Thank you, John. Terrific as always.